Hello, everyone. Welcome to C-Suite Talks, a podcast that takes you inside some of the most interesting businesses and industries today, explores career success and how we can make a difference. Thank you for joining us on the journey. Welcome to C-Suite Talks. I'm Beth Hilbing, co-CEO of C-Suite. And I'm Diane Gubin, co-CEO of C-Suite. This week, we are just so happy to be speaking with Beverly Ban. Beverly is author of Becoming a Boardroom Star. She's been part of our Women on Boards initiative. Becoming a Boardroom Star, her book was released in September 2021. It debuted as the number one new release on Amazon in corporate governance. Ben has worked with nearly 200 boards over the past 25 years, primarily boards of public companies in the S&P 1500 on a range of board effectiveness issues. As part of her work, Bev's interviewed thousands of directors about what makes someone a boardroom star, and she's also figured out things that take away from a board director's performance. Welcome, Beverly. Thank you, Diane. It's a pleasure to be with you and Beth. Thank you. So I'll start the questions. I've read the book. I love the book, and thank you so much for giving us an autographed copy and coming on C-Suite and presenting to our organization. I know this is not your first book. You wrote Great Companies Deserve Great Boards back in 2011, which was named Governance Book of the Year back in 2012, and it's considered a governance classic. What was your inspiration to writing Becoming a Boardroom Star? Well, that's a great question. And um, as you've probably observed, over the last 18 months, um, sort of started, I think, with the BLM and, and social justice movements, there has been a tremendous um, uh, move, really unprecedented, towards diversity recruitment on boards. And to some extent, you know, California has brought initiatives in and the NASDAQ as well. So there's been a lot of factors in play. And if we actually look at the numbers, uh, if we look at, say, Spencer Stewart or Hydrogen Struggles numbers, over the last 18 months, about um, 40% of the new board members in the S&P 500 have either been... Uh, people of color or Latino or Asian, and another 40% have been women. So we've never seen this level of diversity recruitment. How does that relate to the book? Well, about a year ago, I started getting a lot of calls and emails from friends of mine who were black, who were Asian, who were women, who were getting recruited to their first board. And they were thrilled to be going on a board, but they all basically said to me the same thing. They said, I know that I was recruited to the board because of a diversity initiative. That's okay, but I don't want to be a token. I want to be a really great director. And you've worked with nearly 200 boards. You know some of the things that make directors really outstanding and and things that I need to watch out for. What can you tell me? And after I'd had about three of these conversations with wonderful people that really just wanted to hit it out of the park in the boardroom, I went for a long walk in Central Park and I decided, you know, this title came to me. It was called Becoming a Boardroom Star. And uh, that was really the genesis of the book. I love it. So I want to talk about the book and what's involved with the book, but tell us, how do you define what is a boardroom star? Well, I define it as having really two elements. One is a member of the board that routinely makes very important contributions to the board discussion and to board decision-making. They're the person who 
asks a really important question, injects a different perspective that's really valuable to the board. And so the board says, well, when that person talks, we listen um, because they bring a lot to the table. They've got a lot of expertise that they draw on that really is valuable to have their perspective on the issues the board is handling. So that's item number one. The second thing a boardroom star does is they uh, really advance the effectiveness of the board as a team. Because when you think about it, a board is a governance team. Governance is a team sport. Um, boards make their decisions as a group uh, or subgroup if it's a, a committee, right? So it's, it's important. And as you assume increasing levels of board leadership, whether that's a board committee chair or the chair of the board itself, um, your impact and effectiveness in advancing the team uh, aspect of um, that role becomes more important because you're increasingly, you know, providing a leadership role to optimize that team and how they work together. So I think there's both of those elements at play. So if you're a great team player, but you're not really making much of a contribution to the board, you'll never be seen as a boardroom star. On the other hand, you could be bringing in all kinds of great comments and perspectives, but if you're not really viewed as a good team player, you won't be regarded as a boardroom star either. So I think there's both of those elements that come into play. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm going to piggyback on that because it actually brought to mind. So by contrast, you know, there are a number of pitfalls that tend to detract from director performance. And I know you outline these in the book. I think you have 10 of them. Can you talk about two or three that you have seen in your experience that have detracted from performance? Sure. I mean, there's there are 10. So let me let me try to cherry pick a few for you. Um, one that comes up a lot is um, let's say you're on a board and you an issue has come up that you feel very, very strongly about. Um, I'll give you an example. It's a move of the company headquarters and you feel strongly it's going to negatively impact the community. You're from that community. And so you make an eloquent speech in the board saying we shouldn't do this, okay? And you give it all you got. But at the end of the day, the board makes a decision to move the company headquarters. Now, what do you do at that point? Frankly, you have two choices. One, if, it, if you really can't live with that decision, you need to leave the board. But two, if you're like gonna stay on the board, your only decision is to support that decision because that's a decision of the board. Now, what do some people do? They constantly keep revisiting the decision and undermining it, right? Um, I've even seen situations where, you know, they'll, they'll badmouth to members of the executive team. This was such a dumb idea. You know, it's a pet issue. They keep bringing it up. Isn't there problems with this headquarter move? Oh, if we'd never moved yet. When you're on the board, it is a governance team. And so your job is to bring your best argument to bear for something you believe strongly in. But if the vote goes against that, you have got to respect the vote the voice of the board, because otherwise it's really undermining the board and it tends to undermine your credibility too. So that's a really important one. Um, I think another thing that detracts a lot is grandstanding. There are some people that seem to want to show off and prove to the board how smart they are. And, you know, it's frankly annoying. And um, frankly, it's very often the product of insecurity. It's somebody who feels like they got to prove that they belong. If they recruited you, you belong, okay? So you don't have to do that because you're actually taking away from the regard in which they're holding you. Be confident that they recruited you and then 
make good contributions in the room. Don't try to hog the limelight and bring up points to just, you know, show off in front of the board and the executive team because it tends to detract from rather than enhance um, the regard in which you're held. So I would say those are two for sure. And we can certainly talk about others. Fabulous, fabulous. So you've got this wonderful book, which I read and, and thank you again for it. Um, so is this a book for first timers on boards or would people who have been on boards for a while, seasoned directors find it useful too? Well, that's a great question, Diane. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I originally wrote this book for people who were uh, new to the boardroom. And what's interesting about it as well is that while most of my experience is public companies, S&P 1500s, um, I believe and I've had people tell me that it applies to them sitting on boards of private companies, family control companies, um, even nonprofits, you know, hospitals, colleges, things like that. So I think it has broad application. Just going back to your question, yes, I originally wrote it for people that were new on boards, but I've had a lot of people read it. In fact, uh, one of my longtime clients is the chairman of two Fortune 500s. And he said, you know, he's extremely experienced. And he said, this is a book I am giving to everyone I know. He bought 50 copies um, that sit on boards and not just the newbies. Um, there are chapters in there about board leadership. There are chapters about becoming um, a board committee chair, which is often the first leadership role that you take, whether you're going to chair the comp committee or the governance committee or the audit committee. Um, and then uh, it also talks about um, uh, one of, I think, the, mo the biggest shortcomings in board leadership today, which is a failure to step up to director performance problems on the board. Oh, yeah, that's probably difficult. Oh, yeah. that's, that's deep. Talk a little bit about that, please. Well, you know, one of my favorite um, surveys in the U.S. Um, is the PricewaterhouseCoopers annual board survey. And for the past three years, uh, this is a study of about 700 board members um, and their public companies across the United States, all different industries, and they asked them a whole bunch of questions. And for the past three years, nearly half of them have said there's at least one person on our board that we think needs to be replaced, Okay, so that's half the boards in America saying there's like one person here that we don't think is really carrying right. away. And about 20%, like roughly one in four, say or one in five, say there's actually two or more that need to be replaced. And when you think about it, I mean, the people who serve on boards are very accomplished, successful, smart, sophisticated people. So it's awkward sometimes if you're a board leader to sit down and say, hey, you need to you know, it's not working out or it's clear you're not prepared or it's clear you're undermining a board decision or whatever you're doing. They don't want to have that conversation. It's awkward. So they tend to use um, retirement ages and term limits as a performance management tool to turn over the board. Now, the problem is that cuts both ways. You're getting rid of your stars and your dogs at the same time, but it's clean. However, when you ask people, you know, if they say there's a performance problem, there's somebody that should be replaced, they rarely think it has much to do with their age or their tenure. It's usually some performance issue. They're clearly not rating the materials. They haven't invested the time to learn about the business. They're taking the board off topic. They're bringing up pet issues. They're using a condescending tone with management or fellow directors. I mean, it's a performance issue. It has nothing to do with age or tenure. And so... In that Pricewaterhouse study, not uh, this one, but the one from the year prior, they also asked um, those 700 people, rank uh, board leadership in terms of where they're the most effective. 
And 25%, and this was the number one thing, they said that their board leader, so their chair of the board or lead director, was either not at all effective or not very effective when it came to director performance management. Wow. Wow. So are there director performance reviews? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Do they do a formalized review process? Well, there's actually a chapter about that in the book. And most boards, in fact, do conduct what's called a board evaluation. Some also do a director evaluation. But in most cases, it's absolutely useless. It's a compliance vehicle. It doesn't actually produce really constructive and worthwhile feedback for the recipients. And so in that chapter, I talk about how you can redesign that if you're a board leader um, in order to make it really worthwhile and how to even redesign your board evaluation to make it more worthwhile. And where do you personally fit into this process? Well, I do a lot of work. I mean, my, my job is working with boards to optimize their effectiveness. That's, that's what I do. I don't headhunt. I, you know, I haven't been a lawyer for many years. My, my focus is on board effectiveness. So I actually do a lot of work in the board evaluation space because um, I found in 25 years of working with nearly 200 boards, it was the best tool if you redesigned it. So you get away from that sort of box ticking form filling out survey that's really a compliance vehicle a lot of boards adopted in sort of the mid 2000s to actually having really good conversations about a whole range of board effectiveness issues. And you can expand that to an individual director evaluation discussion as well and get some really worthwhile, actionable feedback. So I, I do a lot of that work. Um, you can actually do it internally yourself if you design it differently. And I do provide advice often to board chairs about that too. So, and I consult to boards about CEO succession planning and a whole range of issues, um, board succession planning. So my focus is all on, you know, board effectiveness. That's my, um, that's my sweet space. <laughs> do you work outside of the U.S.? Yes. What are some interesting um, countries and stories? Do you have any stories to share <laughs> of engagement? Well, I have a non-disclosure with, with all my clients. So that sort of limits a little bit what I can say. But I've had the privilege of working with, and I, I can probably say this. Um, so uh, she is, I guess she's still the, the wealthiest woman in Israel. Um, she has a board of a large global food company in Israel. Um, I can actually, her name's Ofra Strauss, and I've had the privilege of working with her and her board um, on and off for 12 years. Um, and what was really wonderful about Ofra, in which, frankly, I see a lot in family control companies when a family member takes a board leadership role, they genuinely want their board. She's right from the beginning, she said, I want my board to be the best board in Israel. She said, I want my board to be the best board I can have because that's what I think my company deserves. And that's what, you know, my family wants. Um, it's our interest to have a great board. And she was so committed to really, uh, you know, I often say with board leaders, there's, there's two kinds. There's champions and there's preservationists. And Ofra is a great example of a champion because what she wanted was she wanted to build a truly outstanding board, even if that was hard for her, even if there were some awkward conversations or some difficult decisions. That's what a board champion does. On the other hand, you find in some companies what I call a preservationist. And they're a board leader who um, they're really thrilled with the prestige of being on the board. Um, and they love status and they don't want to disrupt the status quo. 
and they're not terribly interested in excellence or making things so much better. They, they use collegiality as a way to avoid tough conversations, whether that's with other directors or more commonly, frankly, with the CEO. Uh, they'll excuse, you know, strategic missteps. They'll excuse a whole bunch of things because, oh, well, we don't want to ruffle the fur of board collegiality. But in fact, they're uh, not typically held in very high regard, particularly by the executives, um, you know, because it's very um, difficult for a board, which should, in fact, hold the executive team accountable for results and performance, to then turn a blind eye to um, clear performance issues among the board membership. And that's why, you know, we talked earlier about the importance of director performance management. So I'll tell you another thing that's interesting. I've also done work. I, I did work for many years in Kuala Lumpur, um, had the privilege of working with one of the largest companies over um, in Malaysia, and I've done work in Latin America as well. And I'll tell you what's interesting, Beth. Um, when I wrote Boardroom Star, uh, when I finished the manuscript, I sent it to some people in Malaysia, in uh, Colombia, in the Middle East, and in Canada, and the States. And they all came back to me all over the world. And they said, I've seen exactly this. This is exactly right. And that was so interesting because it's not, a, it's, it's not an American book. It really has global application. And I was so thrilled when that is kind of what came back. Oh, that's great. I love it. So tell us about your career, because we've been uh, talking about your book and so forth, which is fabulous. But, you know, our listeners like to hear the journey. So can you take us kind of from your youth to uh, to your just a little bit synopsis, <laughs> synopsis, yeah, of your journey? Well, um, I, I'm Canadian um, originally, and I lived in Canada until I was 40 when I was transferred to New York. Um, how I got interested in working with boards is when I was in my, I guess, early 30s, um, I was working um, in-house at um, a large global airline that was based in Canada that no longer exists. And um, it was right around the time of the first Gulf War. And so I'm really dating myself, but it gives you an idea. And during the first Gulf War, the price of fuel had gone through the roof and nobody was flying. And airlines were really, really hurting. Um, in the United States, you could go into Chapter 11, but you couldn't do that in Canada. We, our bankruptcy laws in Canada did not allow for that. So all of our American counterparts were filing for 11, and we couldn't. As soon as we filed for the Canadian equivalent, which at the time was called CCAA, they were going to seize our jets and all of this. So there were a group of employees who led an initiative, which was basically a wages for stock deal with our unions. And I got involved in that, and it was we raised $750 million um, to sort of save the company. And so then what happened? And the morale in the place was absolutely <laughs> through the roof. It was electric, That's okay? Great. Because the employees were all putting their shoulders to the wheel and putting their, you know, their their money in the in the stockpile to um, save the company. And so that all seemed to be going really great until um the guy who was the CEO of the airline had this big meeting, all hands on deck meeting at the hangar at the Vancouver airport. And he said, well, to show solidarity with the unions, I and my management team, we're all going to take a 20% cut because everybody was taking a cut. I think the pilots were taking 18 and like down from there. And that was going to be more. So everybody, you know, claps and sings Kumbaya. And that's all great until about three months later, the proxy comes out. And of course, now we have shareholders, uh, we have all of our employees are now shareholders, oh, okay. okay? And yeah. right? 
and all of our unions are now shareholders and they're looking at the proxy, okay? Because they have some stock in this company that they've just given up their wages for. And let's have a look at the uh, executive compensation and let's look at the CEO's compensation. <gasps> hmm. Uh, it's, it's a little lower. Let me get out my calculator. No, that doesn't look like 20% to me. I think it's 4%. <laughs> I think it was something like uh, that. Okay. Yeah. And so our unions were like, what? What the heck's going you on? You know, what gives? Yeah. 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 So, so a missive comes out, and this is in the days before email. So, a missive comes out. I don't know if it went by fax or vet, and it was from the board, you know, defending their decision. And and the CEO basically said, "Well, because I was under so much pressure, the board voted to give me a raise, <gasps> and then they levied the full twenty percent." Well. We had wildcat strikes at some of our airports. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. And then the board decided that they were going to send a letter to the homes of every employee. Okay. And these are employees that are now shareholders. Now, the board is supposed to represent the shareholders, okay? And you might think the letter might say, you know, you're right, we were a little tone deaf, like, you know, we shouldn't have done that, blah, 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 blah. No, no, the letter didn't say anything like that. The letter basically said, you need to be quiet and be glad you have a job and stop criticizing the CEO and the board. Oh, oh no, they doubled down. <laughs> <laughs> they doubled down. Okay. okay. And the morale at the company was just destroyed. Then what happened was, um, you know, the then CEO had become an absolute lightning rod for the employees because of this situation. I mean, the guy could barely walk, you know, down the street. He certainly could be stoned. <laughs> wow. And so, so, you know, and this was a time at which, you know, because I had the privilege of doing work with the Board of Continental at one point in my career. And this was a time at which, you know, David Bonderman was at Boeing hiring Gord Bethune. Okay. It was right that vintage. Okay. Was our board down at Boeing looking to hire? No, no. They did find a new CEO. Okay. And here's his background. This was to run an airline, large global airline. Okay. He ran a commercial real estate company. <laughs> They're the same. Really? And they hired him? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And, and so you might say, well, where did they find this guy? We figure they must have met him. The board must have met him either in the elevator or in the lobby because the commercial real estate was in the same office tower in Calgary, Alberta, as the headquarters of the airline. Oh, interesting. Wow. So that's as far as they looked to give the company its CEO. And needless to say, it didn't take long for this company to completely run into the ground. Um, our big rival, Air Canada, picked it up, you know, at fire sale prices and 30 or 40,000 people lost their jobs. Um, they were my friends. I was interested in boards because I'd seen what bad board decisions um, had made. And look, I wasn't in that boardroom. I can't tell you all the decisions. I can just tell you the outgrowth of it. And it was very ugly. And um, I got interested in boards. So I went back into private practice as a lawyer. And I was doing, you know, securities and corporate finance. And I was closing deals and stuff like that. And, you know, I had people on these boards, and a lot of them were mining companies or forestry companies. And these were very successful people but they were seriously disengaged they they didn't seem to they had the same kind of country club mentality as as I was seeing and I was really you know I was young and naive and I was like you know to me a board is supposed to be where the buck stops 
A board is supposed to be these small, you know, these really smart people that say, hey, have you thought about this? Or maybe we shouldn't do that. Or, you know, there's supposed to be some real value that you get from the talent in that boardroom. And I got interested in that and nobody was doing it. And right around that time, a report came out of the Toronto Stock Exchange, so this was 94, called Where Were the Directors? And it was a scathing rebuke of the state of corporate governance in Canada. And I read this on English Bay Beach like it was a dirty novel. <laughs> and, <laughs> and my friends are like, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading this corporate governance thing. And they said, girl, you got to get a life. And I said, you know what? I think I've got like, this is what I want to do. I'm not interested in just like compliance, all that. I want to learn how to make a board a real asset for a company. And I want to learn how to leverage the talent of the smart people that sit around that board table, which right now are behaving like they're at a country club. So that's what I decided to do. Um, I then started looking for the right way to get into that because no one was doing that work. This was 94. And I ended up going to work in executive compensation at William Mercer in Vancouver in 96. But right from the time I went in, I wasn't terribly interested in executive comp, but it was a way to get into the boardroom day in and day out. And I said, I'm really interested in these broader issues. And at first it was kind of poo-pooed. But then what happened was uh, one of the largest banks in Canada had a shareholder activist. And I got brought in to consult on that issue. And it wasn't just a comp issue. It was way broader than that. And I raised some points about... Um, you know, well, for example, at, in that time, now you guys, you guys are going to be appalled, but I mean, let's, this was, this is 96. Okay. The CEO sat on his own compensation committee. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. You're laughing now. But I know, that was but, but in 96, right? it was like, and they were, and, and I said, well, you know, I think they go, do you think that's a problem? <laughs> yes, I do. And, and I think you're kind of lucky that the activist hasn't, you know, picked up on this yet. And then I looked at, you know, he had a bunch of options and I carved out his options. He really didn't have that much stock. And I said, he has less stock than um, one year's bonus. And he had had this very sort of sensationalized um, romantic relationship, let's put it that way, in the Canadian newspapers. And I said, well, you know, he left his wife for this model that wears a mink bikini and all this stuff. And I said, yeah, and that's all really interesting. But your shareholders actually want to know that this guy's got some skin in the game. And when you take the numbers out, like he really doesn't. So all the way down in the elevator, my then boss was like, you know, up one side of me and down the other. You shouldn't have said these things to the vice chairman of this bank, blah, 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 blah. Well, the next morning, um, just as I was kind of getting ready to, I was in Toronto to leave to go back to Vancouver, my um, former boss phoned me and said, well, last night the CEO resigned from the compensation committee and put in a buy order for a million dollars of stock and you're hired. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> That's great. What a fabulous, That's a fabulous story. story. So much fun. Well, Beverly, we've enjoyed having you today and sharing your life story with us. And you're very passionate about that, we can tell. Truly, we appreciate you very much. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been great fun. Thank you. It's been great fun, you guys. Thank oh, you so welcome. much. So Becoming a Boardroom Star is available on Amazon as a paperback ebook and audio book. And we will include the link in our podcast notes for all of you. And I understand you also created an online workshop that includes one video for each chapter of Becoming a Boardroom Star book. 
and the ebook. And as a gift for $199 and for C-Suite members will get 25% off of the workshop by using the coupon code C-Suite25. We will also include that link here as well so that you have access to that. We'll put it, this out on our social media for C-Suite and for our C-Suite LinkedIn members as well. So thank you again, Beverly. Thank you, Beverly. And we'd like to also thank our sponsors. We'd like to thank Google, the law firm of Manette, the employee benefits firm Woodruff Sawyer, and Amplify Professional Services, Executive Search and IT Consulting. Thank you so much, Bev. It's been a pleasure. That's been a pleasure for me too. Thanks for inviting me and thanks to your listeners. Thank you for listening. Hit the subscribe button on Apple, Spotify, and everywhere you find your podcast today. Leave us a review, five stars, of course. Follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. We love hearing from all of you. Send us an email at beth at csuite.org and check out our website, www.csuite.org and become a member and become active in this great women's organization. Yes, join us on this journey. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, join us on this journey. And we look forward to hearing more from Beverly and reach out and get her book and all of the offerings. So thank you.